0: Have you ever lived away from Australia? I think most of my mates, when I think about it, most of my mates had all moved back by the time they, I think their visas ran out. They were in their late 20s. But I moved away in my early 30s. I think I was 31, yeah. There's something to be said for being in another country, living in another country, immersed in a separate culture. It may be and mine was in North America, but it was definitely a very different culture. And definitely away from your support network. Definitely does something to you. Does something to the way that you think about the world and equips you hopefully with a set of skills that I guess make you more resilient, think about the world in a different way. Now I, I went one of the easy ways. I went to a place where English was all around me. You can go to the UK, you can go to New Zealand, Canada, you could can go to Amsterdam or Berlin, two wonderful cities in Europe where you can get by with English. Or you can go the hard way and you can take the plunge and move to a place where you have no option but complete immersion in language. My guest on this episode is Rachel Coops. Now, Rachel has been on the show before. You may know Rach as the delightful blonde lady who sings songs to your kids on play school every afternoon, or in our house she's also the lady who does cool experiments on play school science time, which is really cool. But did you know that Rachel went to the most prestigious clowning school on the planet? It's the extraordinarily highly regarded school, which is uh, founded and run by Philippe Goyer. Essentially, he's he's the Dumbledore of clowning. It's in Paris, the school. And out of this school, uh, which is, I guess it's an acting school, but through the story and the Essentially, he bases acting on the game, play, that all acting is play, essentially. People like Sasha Baron Cohen, Roberto Benigni, Emma Thompson. These are all people that went to the school and studied there. And Rachel Coops, the lady on play school. Rachel is not only an award-winning storyteller who's made her mark across writing and acting and producing for uh, local and international screens and stages for over two decades. Rachel is also, yes, Rachel is from Play School. It's her second time here on the show. The first time she was here was an absolute cracker. Today we're unpacking her second book, Paris for Beginners, which is right about when I met Rach, right about when I met her, when she just, just, just come back. Paris for Beginners is a reflection of Rachel's experience as a woman in her late 20s someone who was awarded a scholarship to study at this renowned clown school in Paris and someone who made the decision to leave behind a a burgeoning and acting career, a loving, talented boyfriend, a beautiful Arctic apartment in Sydney and then just surrender to the unknown and the possibilities of Paris. It's a story about being willing to be challenged, being willing to take guidance, being willing to fail and to be somewhat I don't want to say the word forcefully or aggressively, but pushed in many ways, somewhat pushed into getting your ego out of the way in order to achieve something. Rachel is a fantastic human being, and I can't wait for you to uh, have a listen to this chat today because it's a really, really cool one. But first, I do need to play some ads because we pay the people that work here. So here's some commercials, and when we're back, it's Rachel
1: Coops.
2: Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Curiosity is the answer to everything. It softens when you get really hard about things. It's a way to bridge difference. It's such a beautiful thing. But I think sitting under for me is like, yeah, just this curiosity about what else is there? And whether it's at a clown school in Paris or through single parenthood here, or you know, tomorrow I'll go in and shoot for the day, shooting play school. I'm it, I'm always exploring for what yeah, what it is.
0: That is author, actor, and play school legend Rachel Coops. This is Osher Ginsberg, better than yesterday. G'day, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being a part of the show. This is a podcast. You clearly are listening to this on a podcast app. Uh, better Than Yesterday, where we're learning how to make it better since 2013. Been here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays for a very long time. Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest, Fridays are with you. My name is Oscar I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. Uh, I'm a husband, dad, stepdad, and I'm someone who just made an amazing green curry. Yeah, I did. With the paste and everything, and the coconut milk, and man, it's really good. It's in my tummy right now. In fact, I hope you can hear the deliciousness in my voice because of the green curry, the tofu green curry that I made. Incidentally, tofu green curry was pretty much the dish that turned me. We have, you know, conversations about people from non-heteronormative sexualities and there. People will describe an experience where they got turned. Well, that was it. It was a green Thai coconut curry at the Piggery in Byron Bay in 1995. And that was it. I was like, this is delicious. I don't want to eat meat much more anymore. And it wasn't very long and then it was all gone. Regardless, enough about what I put in my mouth. That's who I am. And I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being a part of it. If you want to email me, super easy, send us your email at gmail.com. Always love to see where you are watching, where what you're looking at when you're listening to the show. It's always cool. I'll be back in a little bit to chat to you a bit more about that. But enjoy, Rachel Coops. Her book is called Paris for Beginners. It might stoke some memories of your time overseas. It might make you think I should go back. It might make you think I should go. Enjoy. I'm. So happy you're here today, Rachel, and I'm drinking tea, but you are drinking just water. Hot water. (laughs) Take me through that.
1: I don't like cold drinks.
0: Fair enough. Mm. We had a moment. I had to warn Wolfgang that you were coming because the other day we did a, we were lucky enough to be invited to an event for a new episode of Bluey. Oh dear. And um, Simon, the Red Wiggle was there. As was Anthony, and us, he we worked together on a masked singer, and I said to um, someone's like, "Oh, yeah, gave me a big hug and was so like happy to see him. He's huge, massive guy." And I said, "Oh, come over, I'll come over and say hi," because he's got this really beautiful voice. And uh, as we were walking over, I said to Wolfie, "I say, hey, Wolfie, you know, we should wiggle sometimes." Yeah, which one's the one in the red jumper? Oh, that's Simon. I said, "You remember what he looks like?" And his face just went, "Yeah." And I was, uh, <laughs> I was like, someone hit pause. So I just, you know, that's why we were, we were actually out the front waiting for you. Oh,
1: sorry. No,
0: don't be sorry. It's fine. It's fine. It's <laughs> school
1: pickup time. There are yeah, a lot of it's cars. It's brutal. Oh, around my here. Goodness.
0: But yeah, so he was very, we, and we literally sit there on the couch when we watch you. And Aww. it's so nice. Oh. So does my friend Rachel. Uh, but you've written this glorious book about the time that you spent in Paris, which was right before I met you. Yeah. It was right before I met you. Mm-hmm. And I think you still had the haircut. That you left Paris with, had I vaguely recall it had, it wasn't exactly blonde.
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I've been thinking a lot about your book because, uh, G, our eldest, is in Europe right now with her mates, and she's nineteen, and it's, it's, just ten of them, and they're just on this adventure. Let's just talk. I'd love to talk to you about the Paris scenario because it was right. As I said, it was right before I met you. What was going on here in Australia that you thought, you know what? Clown school, (laughs) Paris, that's where I should go.
1: The one where you basically, he infamously... Breaks people. Yeah, that one.
0: Steve O from Jackass. Sasha Baron Cohen. They. This is where I want to go. This, this is, is where I want to go. The next move for me. Not real estate school. Not the Gold Coast. No. Not Hamilton Island. Not working on a yacht. No.
1: Clown no. school. So I'd been working in Australia for ten years. I'd been going to LA every every year doing the pilot season thing. I had done quite a bit of comedy and I really loved it, and I wanted to be funny, and I. I wanted to see how far I could stretch myself, but also I'd never been to drama school because I did an economics degree, uh-huh. and then which, wh- as
0: we know, is the funniest of all degrees.
1: Hilarious, and <laughs> it is hilarious in retrospect. Um, but I think I felt like a fraud because everyone around me had either gone to drama school mm-hmm. or had kind of huge success that had given them an astronomical rise, and I was sort of trucking along. Uh, working pretty consistently. As an actor. As an actor. Yeah. And I I felt like I needed to prove myself. Uh-huh. But more than that, I knew that I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to make my own work. Yes. And I was teaching that at ATYP, Australian Theatre for Young People, and I was really passionate about being, you know, artists, and especially in Australia, creatives being able to write their own stuff and tell their own stories and that's what this school does you devise and it's kind of brutal devising getting feedback the whole time in a very collaborative way but on a subconscious level i think i was i was really ready to learn not just you know in theater but in life all the stuff that i just wasn't going to get tested in living in the place where you, i was brought up in sydney for most of my life and you know, you sort of curate this version of yourself yeah. that your family do and your friends do and, yeah. you you know, you, you sort and of. No
0: more than an hour's drive from a hospital that will save your life. Yeah. You can call a phone number and some people in a car with flashing lights will come and get you from a burning building. Yes. No problem. No problem. You don't have to pay for any of it. It's a pretty wild place to live. Pretty incredible. I, not how the rest of the world is.
1: It is not how the rest of the world is. Nope. And I think it was, I felt I was quite, Safe. I, mm. I'd been pretty kind of, not mollycoddled, but I'd had a, a pretty good run. Yeah,
0: but was, I mean, as any parent would want their kid to have a pretty good run. Yeah. But did you find that it was limiting you creatively?
1: Definitely limiting me creatively, and I don't think I ever really thought I was that creative. I think that's the the, the fraud piece is I knew I loved telling stories and I wanted to be better at it and I wanted to be funnier and I wanted to be able to write more freely but I didn't I didn't feel like the real deal in Australia and I I think there's a you know because you create this version of yourself everyone expects you to be that and so Mm. you just be that and going to Paris felt like a way that I could just have a clean slate and no one knows you and you can fail and you can make mistakes and I had never studied theatre I'd never studied acting so it also made sense to go well I'll go to this place that I know will take me to my limits Hmm. and also is going to give me an experience, like a real experience.
0: Like, okay, so many questions. I'm guessing it's not the kind of place that any punter can get into.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, if you really wanted to get into it, I'm sure you could talk your way in. But I think you need to know what you're up for. And look, I, The world has changed since almost 20 years ago when I was there. And I don't know that, you know, half the things that... I haven't been to Philippe's school since then, so I don't know what is happening in there. I did notice on the website there is disclaimers now, sort of like more of warnings or more... You'd have more of a sense of what you're walking into because some of the things now, I think, in this landscape would be perceived as not okay, you know, like I had 10 glasses of water thrown in my face to stop me from being boring. People were really kind of stripped back to reveal their, their vulnerability. And his whole principle is you have to learn to show your soul. That's your no- only job as a storyteller is to show your soul. And uh, I, do, I I wonder now, you know, how the school is working. I don't know. Mm. But back then... Yeah, I knew I knew from friends and from other people quite how insane it was going to be, but also the thing that I'd heard over and over again was you will see things and you will find things creatively that no one else finds. Like you see moments, and that's what I saw in every single person there was these moments of magic. Mm. Like where you just see someone doing something and you've waited for some of them for six months to have a moment that's so special and you're like, oh, my God, I would pay so much money to go into a theatre and watch that moment. Mm. And that's the magic that Philippe creates. Right. And that's, I think, what I, I knew deep down from people I'd spoken to.
0: Was it a phone call? How did you...? Did they um, go like uh, uh, no no, no français uh,
1: to get like, into the school? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh no, I had to write. Oh, I had to write and say why I wanted to go. Wow! And then it was—it's really expensive. It's actually got more expensive. So yeah. I applied for scholarships. Yeah. And even with a scholarship, I so I would go to school. You know, in from the afternoon to the evening. The yeah. school starts in the afternoon. But I was teaching financial English from my economics degree, thank you so much, Smashing. in the mornings. So I would teach financial English all day and then I'd get on the train to East Paris. And so you have to, and there are also full scholarships for some hmm. people, but it's still, you've really got to want it because it's a, yes, you write, you say why you want to come. Um, they make sure you understand kind of what you're walking into. Yeah, yeah. But then there's also the layer of like living in Paris and surviving for a year when you're doing a lot of hours and it's physically grueling. Yeah. It's really physic. it's physical theatre. So it's physically grueling. It's energetically quite draining. Yeah. But everyone, most of us were also working or, you know, doing something to be there as yeah. well.
0: And I, uh, cause G-, G is getting ready. She, I don't think she's there at the moment. I think a couple of days she gets there, but, um. You know, she has a bag that has wheels. I'm like, if you're, <laughs> if you're catching the train in Paris, you're not going to need those wheels. No. you are. It's just stairs. Accessibility. Yes. There's. I don't think there's a word in French for it. Uh, certainly not when it comes to architecture or buildings or public transport. Like, I remember the first time I was on the metro, I was like, you're fucked. If you're in crutches or like you can't walk that great or if you're in a, in a chair, forget about it.
1: Yeah, and a lot of that, this is the dichotomy of Paris. There's some things that are so old and archaic and there's rules, these still, these cultural rules that you follow and these buildings that are so outdated and so beautiful, they take your breath away, but they're just not conducive to Mm. modern life or accessibility. And, you know, one of my closest friends who was at another theatre school when I was in Paris, Jane Tuttle, who's also written a book about her experience, she put her, her head down to talk to someone who was coming up the stairs and nearly had, like she she broke her neck, but she nearly lost her head. How? Because the lifts in some of the older buildings, there's still just a gap. Between, in the stairwell? Yes.
0: Get out. There's no like, oh, by the way, there's a giant no, lift car coming down the middle know. of the stairwell. And her mate didn't say, um, buddy, there's a lift behind your head.
1: So it was a little girl waving to oh, her. God. Yeah so there's That's this is the thing. there's so much danger in Paris, right? You look yeah, around yeah. and you're like, "Oh my God, these buildings and you're right it's not but at the at the same time, it's now environmentally
2: yeah
1: killing it like the the main strip of there's this this central street that runs through the middle of Paris, rue de Rivoli, and you know like Guillotines Paris, and it used to be the main stretch where all the cars everyone could go from east to west and vice versa.
0: So I think I didn't get your French Revolution joke there. That was actually quite good. Thank you. Well done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> now um, there is, it's just pedestrian yeah. and for bikes. Amazing. And, you know, when I when I was there 20 years ago, there were no Uber Eats or any oh. of that. So there's a lot more bikes on the road, which was, I didn't ride bikes this time because I just walked because I was like, oh, wow. I don't think I could keep up with this volume of bikeage in Paris yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. It's intense. Yeah. I used to ride around without a helmet 20 years ago, but now there's no way. Yeah. So they do, there's a lot of, you know, they're really cleaning up their act in certain ways. And yeah. then the on the other end, yes, all of that hasn't changed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so you get the phone call, you get the email, you get the letter back going, mm. okay, Rachel, you're in. Um, what? Well, see ya. Bye, guys. I'm back in a year. And, and that's it? Did you line up a place to stay? Like, what was the scenario?
1: So, at the time, I was living with Tony Perrin. In yeah, you may have even come to that apartment when I got back, based on the Red Wall apartment.
0: Maybe. I don't what you, so, at the time, though, Tony Perrin, just for people listening overseas—Tony Perrin is a quite a high-profile Australian television person and was on a weekly show that was watched by squillions of people. And there's quite a, you know, live, you're living the life, man. You're like it was. It was like we we're going out. We're going out. We're going out all night. Kind of life. It was fun.
1: Yeah. yeah. So Tony, she had stopped, she kind of recorded her last songs in that apartment. That's
0: right. Yes, yeah, she was a pop star as well. She yes. was
1: a pop star. She's just released a few dance songs recently, which I love that, you know, she's yeah. 50 and she's killing it again. But anyway, that's a side note. So Tony and I literally lay on the Hessian carpet. We have red walls in this apartment. And we looked for the most paris apartment. I was like, where am I going to live for the first two months? And so we went through and I knew that the Marais was a cool area. Yeah. And so I looked there and I'm like, oh, that's a bit expensive. So we found the tiniest, teeniest, mm. tiniest one in a really cool area that had, you know, exposed beams and what do you call it? Like an elevated bed of futon, but that was up, mm. kind of here. So you basically hung out under the futon. Yeah. And that's how we booked it. So I booked that for two months. And went with my boyfriend at the time. Uh-huh. And then he came back to Australia after a month. And then I was like, do I stay in the Marry?" But in the meantime, I had gone to a friend's 30th birthday in the French countryside. Yes. In this chateau. It was very, like, that That weekend was one of the most incredible weekends. You, know, you can imagine coming from Sydney and you land and then you're in the countryside with all yeah. these French people.
2: Yeah.
1: And I met, I re-met someone a French girl I'd met many years before through the birthday boy. And Victoire is her name, and she was looking for a flatmate. And so then I moved in with two Frenchies after the second month into the ninth, which is a very French residential Mm -hmm. kind of not hipster, not cool. So I was then in kind of a proper Parisian.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Nice. <laughs> not at all, but so, pretending.
0: On, let's talk about the, the dynamics of the whole boyfriend conversation. Like, I'm going for a year. Mm-hmm. Like, what was the conversation around that? Yeah. How was he? Because, like, I only ask because you can't be what you can't see, and this might be the first time someone might be, you know, thinking about taking a career opportunity or thinking about an educational opportunity, understanding that, oh, hang on, there's this person I've been with, I've been with him for a year, I've got this thing. And they might not know you know, not only how it might work, but also, you know, what might.
1: Breaks it. Yeah. Or what
0: worked <laughs> for somebody else or what didn't work for somebody else.
1: So the plan was, like you say, it's a year. We can survive a year. Mm-hmm. And he was also an actor. And so he's like, okay, well, if I get my tax return and then I do this other job that I might be getting, then maybe I can come back. You know? mm-hmm. And so we tried to do, and th- okay, but let's set the stage that it's 2004.
0: Mm, there's no FaceTime.
1: There's no FaceTime. No there's no WhatsApp. Nope. There's, and actually phone calls are really expensive A from Paris. A text message
0: cost $1.50. Yes. To get from here to Europe. Yes. Like 150 characters.
1: And you had to press the... The one key three times to yeah. get to the third letter. There's
0: no eggplant emoji on the Nokia T9. And
1: there's no like, you know, no. bang, bang, bang. You have to actually press the letter three times to get. Yeah. So texts were short.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then when we emailed and we had this stupid rule, I mean, look, you know, we all put in rules thinking we're doing the best mm-hmm. for the relationship. But the rule was let's not speak all the time because, A, we can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> I was a student. He was struggling to be an actor and wanting to save money to come back. So let's just, let's email each other and mm-hmm. write letters. Yes. And so I would sit in the the internet cafe, which also charges yes. like 10 euros for five minutes. And
0: also doesn't exist anymore. But there was a time when you would sit in a room <laughs> that was probably now like a hot desk space with
1: 300 people. Yes.
2: And the
0: clackety-clack of Clackety a million clack. keyboards and the weeping of someone on the, some sort of weird VOIP call and like, Yeah.
1: And because the French like to do things their way, their letters are in different places. Oh,
0: their own keyboard. That's right.
1: (laughs) So you're like, oh, damn it, constantly. So my emails ended up being quite short because you're limiting time and whatever else. Uh, And so we tried really hard and then he decided perhaps he'd come to London to try the acting thing in London Mm -hmm. to be closer because it's kind of close to Paris. But, you know, London is not Paris. And the Eurostar is expensive,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and two people in a foreign country struggling to survive is almost worse than having one of you home where you weren't struggling as much. Yeah. So that was that kind of made things like a European winter is basically what killed us. Oh, right. A European winter of both of us really kind of being taken to our limits in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, in, in the end, I really I feel like. Maybe in today's world it's easier because we're so much more connected. Yeah. But back then it was it was really challenging to stay, to maintain a sense of, hey, I'm here still. Yeah. And without the time difference thing too of going, because you can someone can send you a WhatsApp now mm-hmm. at 10 o'clock at night. You get it in the morning, you wake up, you're like, oh, you're not going to get it late at night and read it in the wrong way. And so mm-hmm. we were also dealing with that. Someone's waking up bright and sparky, someone's about to go to bed, you misread each other. Good times. You are. Good you, you times. Are, yeah, I've, I've, I've
0: got some experience in this area, Rachel yeah. You might be aware
1: of. Yes, I remember. <laughs> I
0: remember. It's good times. It's hard, dude. It is hard. But, you know, I guess ultimately, um, like I can only speak from my own experience of having been in those situations. So I've done interstate as well here in Australia. um ultimately if you want it if you both want it
2: mm.
0: it'll be there mm. but something inside of you might not want it that much mm. and that's you know it's hard but ultimately it's it's kind of it's always no 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 great relationship ends in a breakup you know
1: yeah, yeah. and <laughs> I, I do yeah i do think too that you can't have those years like in retrospect it was my real With Saturn Return, have you heard of Saturn Return? I have. Yeah. So they say every, around 28, 28, 29, 29. Saturn comes back into your chart, same as when you're born, and it's when you step into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people have this kind of coming of age. And I did. I really had this... Because for the first time, I could be creative and I could be anything and anyone, and yeah, it was really hard to do that still being connected to my past or someone yeah. from home. And I didn't realize that at the time, but maybe you have to give up everything you think you are if you're really if you really do want to discover who you are. Like maybe that's part of the deal, and it doesn't mean there was any less love, but it just wasn't going to happen while I was still had. Part of me in another country with another person,
0: and if that person is okay with, because I've definitely I I got off a plane in another country and introduced myself with a different name, and no one asked any questions. Mm. And this is just who I presented myself as, and they just treated me that way, and that was it, and like that. And if there was someone in my life at the time who was like, "What are you doing that for?" Mm. It would have been very difficult. Yes, but no one had any cause to ask. People just took it on face value, and it allowed me to really sit into a new kind of sober version of myself that did life very differently mm. to how I used to do life. Um, so I can totally under, understand that. I, if I recall correctly from your book, the Rachel that got on the plane was there was a lot of yoga involved.
2: <laughs> yes. There
0: was a lot of vegan food, there was yes. green smoothies. Yes. <laughs> how did that go down with you know the you know, Algerian bakery scenario and you know the fromage?
1: And punch chocolat.
0: How long did that last?
1: And the vin rouge and the rose. Oh. Uh, not very long. Yeah. <laughs> not very long. But no. what was kind of interesting about it is part of me not having gluten and all the other things that I didn't used to have was I get psoriasis. It's an autoimmune disease. Mm. So when I'm in, in inflammation, then I, ha- I have psoriasis. And in Paris, I did all the things. Plus, way worse things, like s- started smoking again all the time and probably drinking more. Re- I never, I was never a huge drinker. Like, I'm pretty sure
0: that, is it, what, what do they call them? Androisements? Like, is that what they call them? Arrondissement. The, the, Arrondissement. A- a- there's, a- there's like there's a line like where you start to pay the city toll. And if you don't smoke beyond that line, they're like, <laughs> you oh, sorry, charged. no, 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 no. Like, you, to- you're not allowed to go if you don't yeah. smoke. Like, literally 55 milligram ciggies underground in winter, non stop. <laughs> Yeah. Been in those bars. And and you know what was
1: kind of heartening about this trip going back is my girlfriends in their 40s and my male friends as well, they're still smoking. Wow. I was like, it was almost a relief. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like, oh, good. Some things in Paris don't change, like some like yeah. very ingrained. They're all still – but outside on the balcony where the kids couldn't see them.
0: Yeah, right, I right.
1: love it. I'm like, I guarantee their parents do the same thing.
0: So which, it's fascinating because I have – you know, let's talk about autoimmune business, but I have, like, I'm discovering I'm celiac and – um uh, I have heard, you know, there's, there's the. What is it about Paris? Like, there's that great book, you know, French women don't get fat. Mm. You know, there's like, what is it? It was, a, for me, the psoriasis is just, if I'm stressed in combo with everything else, that's mm. right, just explosion town. It's no fun. Mm. Um, what was it that you. Were you getting those reactions?
1: I think the food is, di- like, the bread is different. The bread is rock hard after a day. There's still rules about how you make baguette in right. Paris. There's still rules about It goes back to. You know the '70s and '80s where you have to put a certain amount of flour, and mm-hmm. so it's the bread is made differently, oh. and the produce. I don't know why, but like it, it all goes off quicker. Everything goes. Yeah. So maybe there's less preservatives. There's there's less. Everything's kind of closer because it's smaller yeah. in terms the of where it's coming is from. Like right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. like I, I don't know, but the food was one one aspect, and then I do think not having the normal pressures. I had different pressures, Mm. but not having the normal everyday life pressures. And also, I mean, a year of just being diving into discovering who you are and then also creativity, just taking myself to the limits of that. Yeah, Such a joy. I was so happy. Like there was so much about my life there that just didn't fit, you know. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I can't tell you why I love that city so much. I cannot put my finger on it. But when I'm there, I feel closer to myself than right. anywhere else in the world. I literally land and I exhale uh-huh. and I feel happy. And I don't I don't know why. It's not like I can give you a, a, a list of reasons. I just feel connected to, to a part of myself that doesn't exist anywhere else.
0: In a way, there's a part of me that feels like that when I'm... Because I grew up in Brisbane. So the part of me that is like that when I'm in Sydney, because... Like anyone that has moved for usually a work reason, again, like the things that I didn't need to take with me from Brisbane or things that I was known for or things that I did that I didn't need to have here or were better off without, I left behind. Mm. And here, they didn't exist. And they went in my life. And I have a similar version happen in Los Angeles, but to your point, that I had a similar experience when I was in Amsterdam between gigs. I didn't know if I was going to work in TV again. So I, I went to business school in Amsterdam, ended up talking my way into getting a job there. And I was going to, I was literally going to move there because wow. I was born in London. So I had a British passport that was pre, pre-Brexit. And I was about to move there when I met Audrey and Georgia. And But similarly, when I'm in Amsterdam, I have like, oh, here it is. Be- mm. Because it's only, the, like, it's only the greatest hits to get off the plane. I guess for me, Mm. it's, um, that's, yeah, that's, but I understand the feeling that, that you have, but it's also, you know, the, the person that, the person that is now in adulthood was essentially, that's the crucible where it was born. She started there and the person that came back was very different. People may have treated you the same, but they're like, no, 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 man, I've had 10 glasses of water in the face, bro. I'm (laughs) <laughs> that's probably only a small part of it. So like this is the part of the thing, because I remember you telling me about this joint and you, your voice didn't tremble, but there was a thing in your voice when you were describing it when I first met you. Uh, you actually very earnestly mm. tried to convince me from out of, like try to convince me don't go to Los Angeles. <laughs> you, mm. I remember we had coffee. You said, don't go. Don't do it. Mm. You, you told me all kinds of reasons not to go. Uh, they were all very valid and most of them true, uh, came true for me at least. But the way you describe it in the book and the way you talk about it here, and I don't want to big it up and I, I don't want to diminish what you went through, but it does sound a little a bit like some sort of military boot camps that you hear, as in whatever you came in here with, we are going to essentially <laughs> destroy and then when you have been destroyed, we will put you back together. So therefore, we will have you all back together in a similar way, knowing that you all know the same things. And I have heard had acting Friends who've gone to some of those pretty more hardcore schools in LA, the ones with photos of James Dean on the wall, mm. you know, in that room studying like here, okay. And there's a bit of that. Why is that? Why is that necessary when it comes to acting? Why is you know why is it necessary to be so emotionally like to to break someone emotionally so much?
1: I don't know that it is necessary for everyone. I think some people just have an ability to connect so deeply Mm. to... Because I have friends who never went to drama school and are are extraordinary, extraordinary actors and have capacity to bear their soul Mm. and connect to that in a way just so easily. But I think a lot of us, because of all the reasons of life, we have to unlearn a lot of what we've learned in order to be able to be really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't like to be vulnerable. Mm. And... You cannot tell stories or be an actor, and I'm sure it's the same for many forms of art. I'm not a painter or a songwriter, but I imagine it's similar. You, you, If you don't have the ability and the capacity to be truly vulnerable, then it's really tricky to connect to other people. And I was always very good at being funny, playing the... The clown on the surface, but what re- what happened for me was when Philippe would try to get me to be vulnerable on stage, I couldn't do it. Mm. Like I could always make people laugh, you know. But my capacity to really allow myself to be open was, it was only through the process of like I 10 glasses of water in my face. But also the, he he's so brilliant in the way that he remembers things. So I had this incident where... I'd lost a shirt that I wore of my dad's and it has, it's a RAF shirt, so it has my my dad's name on it. He wore it in the 70s in his military service in Southeast Asia and I wear it all the time. And i it had disappeared at school. And I was, you know, in the dressing room saying everyone, it's not just like a, a, a
0: thing from a disposal a se- store. Yeah, it's not yeah, a disposal.
1: Yeah. It's not a secondhand, it's not a market shirt because we're all wearing stuff from the markets. So I'm like, it's actually a really important shirt. Has anyone seen it? Couldn't find it, and Philippe obviously noticed. I didn't see that he noticed. And then the next day, I came back, and the shirt was folded there. Someone had found it. I don't know who. Mm. Doesn't matter. I was just happy to put it back on and go. And as I was walking up the stairs, he was like, "Oh, your dad's in the in the military," and I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Oh, he was a big hero, was he?" And I was like, "Yeah." We had this little chat. Six months later. I'm on stage doing this improvisation and how school worked was he'd give us a little bit of instruction about a thing and then he'd go, ooh, which meant who wants to, who wants to get up, ooh. So like some of us would get up and we'd try something. Sometimes there'd be very limited instructions so you just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, and you know in those moments that sometimes magic is found because people don't come up with their ideas. And then sometimes there's a bit more extra instruction. So I had, was doing this improvisation and he would feed lines and he starts to go, you know, where is my shirt? Have you seen my shirt? It's green, it's gotten, you know, numbers on it. Da, 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 da. it. It was my father's shirt. And as he's sa- feeding me this line, like lands on stage. And I just started sobbing. And it was that moment of connecting what he'd been trying to get me to do all year through. Yeah. So that's the point of those experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily to break you for the point of breaking you. It was like, Oh, that's ha- what I need to connect to in a scene like this.
2: Yeah.
1: I need to find that part of myself. Yeah. And, you know, afterwards I went home and emailed my dad and I like, yeah, yeah. had this whole kind of epiphany. And it's not to say that at the end he put me back together. By the end of the year he didn't. I was so broken at the end of that yeah. year. Like I failed at clown. I was a disaster. I was really good at clown the first time I'd done it and then at the end of the year I was just, I was a disaster. He even gave me a second clown, which he doesn't often do, to try. And I like crucified that as well because i still hadn't learned i i wasn't good at failing uh-huh. taking the risks to fail on stage right and i wanted so much still to be good and to be funny like even at the end of the year i didn't get to the point where i say like, okay and i live happily ever after and i'm a really good actor now <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> you
1: know? i don't i don't see the schools as that and i think some of them actually can be a little bit dangerous from that perspective. You know, you you think about how many people are coming in with trauma or mental health experiences and, and different le- different understandings of the world, and then we kind of put them through these experiences that are pretty brutal. As that's what I mean by in today's world, I think we have more of an understanding about maybe it's not such a great idea for everyone, and yeah. not everyone needs to do it. Yeah. But for me, it was certainly a way to access parts of myself. And I don't know that it's always translated, in fact, to my work as an actor. I think it's translated a lot to my life and to writing mm-hmm. and to teaching as well, like, and and my spiritual life. I think a lot of those lessons have kind of made sense Later in life, to go. Oh, right. He ju- he he wanted me to understand what it is to truly yeah be vulnerable and be okay with because I still struggle with that. I struggle yeah. with it in relationship with people. Yeah. I struggle with it all the time.
0: And, and that's ultimately what what the I guess what they're trying to do in those moments, uh, particularly what Philip was trying to do there, is to um you know have you experience an emotion that is so easily readable either it be on a theater stage or on a screen down a camera lens. Because if you, like you've watched some older films, you watch films from like fifties or sixties and you just needed to be hot. <laughs> you didn't need to authentically have emotion. You just need to be kind of hot, have a good jawline, Oh, great figure. Yeah. You're great you film star. But there's just literally saying lines and parroting what they think someone who's sad feels like. And that's, Made the cut. Great. Stop moving on. Yet, if you watch some of, if, if, if you tried to pull that kind of performance now in a film or a TV show or whatever, forget about it. Like, mm. not even in a procedural that does 48 episodes, you know, episodes a year, can you get away with that level of, mm. of committing to an emotion on screen? Like, I would some of the, Audrey loves a I can't stand him. You know, bear in mind though, I used to watch a lot of Star Trek Next Generation, which is essentially a procedural in space, but that's fine. I was 19.
1: I needed the money.
0: <laughs> I needed <laughs> something to watch while I was smoking bongs, Rachel. Um, and it was a lot of it. Uh, anyway, but you know, you, you, you watch these shows and they churn them out, man. Mm. But the um, emotional, uh, even iced tea can do it. You know, iced motherfucking tea from Body Count can do it. And this is your, you know, just absolute sausage factory kind of TV drama. Makes squillions of bucks, but you, no one's finding it in. You can't because we as audiences just expect so much from what we see on screen. We need a story to be believable and you can't believe it if it's not there. Now, yeah. you can kind of fake it, you know, um, and it works both ways. It works on the edge. Like when you're getting to drama, it's fine to, you know, I remember being, you know, the, the classic kind of David Brent improv theatre, you know, getting held up moment. Like, you can do that, but even to be funny, to be funny, you've got to, you've got to you've got to commit. Mm. You cannot not commit. It's just not funny if you don't commit, and that is fucking terrifying. Mm.
2: <laughs> mm.
0: So, so I understand why he'd do that, but I also understand why there's disclaimers on the website now because if you, you know, if you're heard about this place that Steve-O went to or you've heard about this place that Ali G or the Sacha Baron Cohen went to, you're like, this is it. I'm going to be a star. And you get there and someone's like, actually, no, Gavin, you're a fucking yeah. <laughs> not good and you're going to have – but it's like, hang on, everyone's told me I've been good my whole life and I've paid a lot of money to be here so therefore I'm good. No, buddy. You're actually not. It's okay. How dare you? Like, as you said, it's not for everyone. <laughs>
1: It's not for everyone. And, you know, like Philippe would not even say you're not good. He'd say, uh, the little Australian, uh, do we think uh, she is, oh, my God, what she does is so amazing. I pay money for this. So we think uh, not even uh, she can do street performer like this, but not street performer in Sydney. Uh, cinema." Perhaps in Adelaide in the back lane <gasps> industry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Brutal. Like no one else in the room knows where Adelaide is, but you do. But you do. Oh, you
1: do. Oh, man. Yeah. And so <laughs> he never says – oh, no, actually, that's not true. Sometimes he would say, oh, my God, so, so bad. Oh, my God. But if he said you're bad or if he did a joke, you were like, okay, that wasn't great. But if you're performing – And you'd know that you had to stop because he would just hit his drum. If you're performing and he hits his drum and he doesn't even mention your name or he just tells you to sit, you know you were really bad. Like, (laughs) wow. Like, never in your life (laughs) is someone gonna come and watch that.
0: I had an improv coach who I loved and she'd just go, boo! Oh no! (laughs) Boo! She'd just shout from the side. Boots, Do it again! Do it again! Boo! It was at UCB. And she was right every time. Yeah. She was right. And she's like, I'm going easy on you. I'm not even paying, you're paying me to watch this and I don't like it. Like, you cannot expect people to pay because ultimately Mm. you're asking people to pay for something. Mm. And if if you want this to be rich and famous, the rich part means someone has to believe that you're worth that much money, whatever it is, Hemsworth bucks. Mm. You know? You know, if you can't do that, (laughs) yank.
1: And that's, and his perspective, because, you know, it's a theatre school, so it's all about theatre, is like people come to theatre to watch magic. Yeah. Right? You are coming to give up a night to go sit in Mm. a theatre and pay the money to go to the theatre. You want to be sitting there going, oh, my God. Like, yes, it's easy to turn off Netflix so that the drama and the stakes have to be higher for television, right? Because it's mm. you lose people quicker. But the expectation of how you're going to feel in a theatre is way more than turning on a TV show. Like, people want to be moved. And if you're not prepared to get on that stage and bear every single part of yourself, mm. then he's like, don't waste our money. Don't waste our time. And I'm not, saying that by the end of the year, and I ended up going back for more because I'm a sucker for punishment. I went back for a second year. I'm not saying by the end of my time with him, I even felt like I could do that. I don't think it was the point for me. It was that discovery of finding all of the things I still need to work on forever, Mm. probably. Yeah. Because I didn't get there in that time with him. It's not like I suddenly resolved it and felt like oh, I can always be vulnerable. I know how to be funny all the time now. Yeah. And I can be sensitive. Because the thing with clown is you have to be sensitive first and foremost. It's like the relationship between the audience and the clown is, it's really close one. But the clown has to fail. The clown isn't funny till he fails. And when he or she fails and we're like, we laugh at the failure, it's the humility that then we fall in love with. And so if you're not, able to be completely humble and show your humility, you're going to die. You know, and he's, he used to say, he's like, you come on here with your shitty idea, Rachel. Oh, this shitty idea. I'm going to show you my idea. And all we see is the idea. We don't see your soul. And so that you have, there is an element of having to be stripped back and yeah. and stop wanting to sell our ideas, you know, which yeah, think is it storytellers and actors and writers. We like yeah. to do it. Oh, I've got this idea. Let's, let's create it's it.
0: It's fascinating you talk about the, the <laughs> transaction of what a clown is. And it may be, you know, maybe the traditional, like the, you know, what was that really massive one? Slava. A humongous clown. Slava Snow Show was fucking gigantic. It had filled the Enmore or State Theatre, mm. QPAC, like 3,000 people a night mm. for a week. Just bonkers. Um, but ultimately it's not... I'm, um, you know, I think the, the steve kind of leaned on the, because of who he was surrounded with, he he leaned on the Schadenfreude part, you know, really leaned on that. But after all, while, I, I can't, particularly me, I, I, I couldn't engage with Jackass mm. because I just just felt, I just feel icky after a while. Like it's, you know, it's fun watching a figure skater fall over in competition once. Mm. But if you just watch a highlight reel, the figure skaters falling over, it's like, I don't feel very good inside Mm. for doing that. And it makes an audience feel kind of, but if there's no, oh, I I actually care that they fell over now. It was funny for a second, but now I care that they fell over. That's the bow. That's the bow on the present Mm. of it, isn't it?
1: And I guess it's the genius of what Sasha does because he... Is always displaying things that he deeply cares about under the guise of these layers. Which is, I'm going to play. I'm going to I'm going to uncover anti semitism by playing an anti semite and making you fall in love with him too. Like he's so flawed, right? Yeah. But I'm going to make you love him. Yeah. And until you're like, oh, I really shouldn't like this guy. Like he's yeah. actually terrible. And the genius in that of learning how to be sensitive and how to how to really look at. The places that we should be telling stories about, the things we should be uncovering, in a way that it has humour but sensitivity as well, and you know, like life support, which I knew you back then as well. This show that I did in two thousand, we wouldn't be able to make that show today either because the, the levels of satire and political commentary, and it's the in the landscape we're in now, the way that you have to approach things, if. We don't have. We don't start with that sensitivity, and we don't start with that that failure of the clown. You're right. It just all becomes uncomfortable. Yeah. It all becomes like squirming in your chair. And am I laughing at what I should be laughing at? And, yeah. Which is the point of satire, right? And it is the point of no. black comedy, and it is the point of a lot of the brilliant work that we see. But there's such a, a level of intelligence required in layering it in that way, and it doesn't always work. And then you have people laughing for the wrong reasons or you have an audience that you don't really want to be engaging in it feeling like it's written for them.
0: And then then you're Dave Chappelle walking away from the biggest check on the face of the earth because he's like, no. Yeah. This, no. And they're like, we'll put another zero on it. No. Yeah. And he he walked away because he just can't, because exactly that, have you seen that special where he talks about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's extraordinary.
1: It's extraordinary. Because
0: I remember hearing him saying no to the deal. I was like, what?
2: Mm. How?
0: And then only when I saw the special, I was like, uh uh-huh. uh-huh. mm. Right. Mm. <laughs> right. Okay, then. Uh, which it ended up becoming, which is what Chappelle's show ended up mm. ended up becoming. The entirely different, the same material started taking on a completely different meaning. And it's like, he's like, no, <laughs> that's not it. I'm done. Mm. I'm out. And now I was doing some of the most fucking spectacular stand-up.
1: But there's – you have to be intelligent, brave. And I think the thing that I learnt in Philippe's school, and I guess what's starting to make sense for me too, is like um if you are – The clown is the oppressed. Like, the clown is always the underdog. And the buffon, buffon, which is where all modern-day satire comes from, you know, the buffon has the layer of they were the oppressed. The buffon existed because they were allowed into the church, you know, once a month to go in there and have their sins forgiven. And instead of getting their sins forgiven, they would dress up as a priest and do a mock sermon. And the priest would walk in and go, oh, look at that horrible person. Oh, my God, it's me. And then he'd have a heart attack and die. So you are ultimately... Killing the person that you who is the repressor by means of comedy. And that is just such a complex beast to be able to navigate and tackle. And especially today. So mm. I, I feel like, yeah, the 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 nuance of sensitivity, compassion, um, understanding like what stories right now really do deserve to be told and need to be told? There's, and there's been a lot of me, and I think you've said this before too, and I could be wrong, but there's a lot of me lately sitting back and going, it's not my time to tell stories. Like it's my turn to shut up and listen and learn. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: And so as a storyteller, I'm trying to find my way of going, well, what can I share that is Yeah. Unique and relevant to mm. and may resonate with someone and may be great for them to hear. Oh, there's there's an aspect of that that yeah. I can, but it's, I've consciously kind of stepped back a bit yeah. because I've f- I felt like, I don't know, I don't know what my place is in the landscape of, yeah, in the landscape of storytelling in the way that I used to. I, I need to reframe it. I want to re examine what is worthwhile. Talking about and exploring and- Yeah,
0: tell, tell a story of someone who listens. is a great, tell- great story to tell. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> people might not know what that looks like. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, particularly in a year like this where it's never been more important to listen, yeah. never been more important to think about what someone else's experience might be. I'm talking about the voice referendum. If you guys to
2: That's what I'm talking about,
0: and I, I want I want to get to the yeah, we'll we'll get to the boyfriend stuff, uh, but the
1: juicy stuff.
0: But not only because I, I think it's interesting because not everyone's going to go to clown school, right? No. But everyone... Everyone
1: should go to clown school. Everyone should go.
0: I should go to clown school. You should but go to clown school. You'd you, love
1: it. You would love it.
0: Mad, I'd be mad for it. Oh, I've, you
1: genuinely, like, I, I can see I'd be really good for it. I'd love, I'm up for it. Oh, my. Especially Buffon. You would
0: Oh it. Oh, man. I, and I, it'd take me about... I will be half finishing the sentence of, hey, Audrey, she'd be a yep. <laughs> it'd mean that I'm... That's fine. But oh, yeah, it's okay. Like, we'd, and we'd be on a plane. <laughs> Uh, I'd love to, but the idea, and this is something that I ask because it's something I've experienced myself, this mm. thing that I, I wanted to do so badly, so badly I tried twice at it and still didn't do it. How I'm wondering, how did that inform the things that you did after that? Did you find yourself with more questions to be asked about how, how how could I not get there? Am I trying to get there through all my other work, through the writing I do, through the other work that I do, through my parenting? Did you find that that kind of put you in a direction of trying to get there under your own terms?
1: Do you mean get there career wise? Oh no, that just that vulnerability, yearning. that yeah. thing that
0: you couldn't access yeah. for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, I think I'm still. I think I'm still on the journey yeah. of of doing it, and I think I keep getting pretty big lessons in my life. Yeah. To learn, hey, it's okay to fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you didn't understand? Let me just really make you fail. Yeah. Uh, you know how your worst fear is to be a single mum like your mum? Let's do that. <laughs> ah. <laughs> let's have you let's have you pregnant and and give birth by yourself. Uh I've re- I've learned I learned both those lessons about fear of failure and not wanting to be vulnerable and and also, like, what is love? I think I'm still had someone. You know, when you don't know something about yourself, and then a friend says, uh, "I love that you're this," and you're like, "Am I?" And I had a really close friend the other day say, "I just love that you're you're a romantic." And I was like, "Am I romantic?" And because and the point was, I was saying, "I, I am never going to meet anyone on internet dating. Like for me, it will be a connection, a deep mm-hmm. soul connection," and. I was like, am I romantic? And then I thought, yeah, I really am. I really, I still have that. I'm still learning that lesson to trust that love is enough and will find me in the way that it's meant to. And that's the journey I went on in Paris and the vulnerability piece and the failure piece. But I get the lessons again and again and again in different forms. I think some of the things that Philippe really drummed into me early in the piece, though, like he starts with, what's called leisure and leisure is like the game or to play and he's like you cannot do anything on stage without a game without pleasure
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that really landed like to be playful in front of the camera to be playful when i'm writing to be playful in my life that's one that i've really i i i think i've made p- progress with i think i've learned a lot from i think it's mm-hmm. made me a better person a better parent a better play school presenter maybe, like all these things, the play in me, the ability mm-hmm. to gen. But, yeah, the rest of it, I feel like it still informs my life, but I, it's still like that was kindergarten in some ways and now I'm still learning all of those things.
0: Well, what are we if we're not learning that, Rachel?
1: Yeah, and, you know, there's this word in Welsh called horaith.
0: Love it. it. Is it spelt with a W?
1: Probably. Yeah. <laughs> H-I-R-A-T-H. And Brennan Cowell actually sent me this article on Horeath once he had... I'd been talking to him a lot about what the book was about. And I was in the, the throes of writing it and figuring out what it was about. Because yeah. you start writing a memoir, you know, and it's never what you think it's going to be. And especially because it was specifically... It's not really a memoir like... I'm not Barack Obama, right? So it's like...
0: He's never been a single mother. So fuck him.
1: It's true. So... As I was working it out and I told him all the things that I was exploring, he sent me this article, Herayeth. And so I, it's actually like in the first chapter because I was like, oh, my God, that's exactly what the book is about. And Herayeth is this deep yearning. It's closest to nostalgia in English, but it's not nostalgia because it's often associated with a place mm. or a time in your life, something you can't get back. But it's also the it, because it's a feeling, I feel like, it's something that I have in me all the time and it's the thing that keeps me searching in general, whether it is through vulnerability or storytelling or teaching or whatever, all the different things that, that it's this kind of like sometimes I think there's something wrong with me that I'm always hungry for the next project or the next, right, like constantly searching. And when I saw this word, I'm like, oh, no, it's just a human condition. It's part of the human condition that I am eternally yearning to know life more, to understand myself more, to understand other people more, to understand what it's all for. Um,
0: You're not alone there, Rachel. Like that's the, literally the name of the podcast is better than yesterday because I can't stop doing it. Mm. I have people in my life who are like, just fine. And I'm great. I'd love to be that. It's not that I'm not never satisfied. I'm just really curious. Like, okay, well, how, how, how much better could this be? Like I'm loving where it is, but there's fun to be had in getting just a little bit, kind of closer to zero on wherever it is that I'm trying to find here, and that's you know unlocking those mysteries is that's for me that's the fun part.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> it's like it has been what else? Uh, like I feel like curiosity is the answer to everything. Like it just yeah. it softens when you get really hard about things. Yeah. it's a way to bridge difference. Like it's such a beautiful thing, but. I think sitting under for me is like, yeah, just this curiosity about what else is there, mm. you know, and whether it's at a clown school in Paris or through Single Parenthood here or, you know, tomorrow I'll go in and shoot for the day shooting play school. I'm, it, I'm always exploring for what, yeah, what it is.
0: Yeah. as, <laughs> as so on that you have the breakup conversation. I'm guessing that was an expensive phone call uh, with the boyfriend who was in Londres at the time. Just a moment away from Rachel Coops to say that uh, if you felt like it, a way, a wonderful way to support this podcast is to uh, tell somebody. So just hit that little three dots or the hamburger or the arrow or however you share in your podcast app and send it to a mate. Post it to your feed, screenshot it, put it in your story, whatever you want. Just if you tell someone about this show, it is hugely beneficial for us. It really, really helps us. If there's someone in your life that you think could do with a bit of Paris, maybe they want to listen to this one. You could also find me on TikTok and Instagram. It's a lot of fun. Both are very different places to do things. and um, It's interesting being expressive in both places and here. and Also, you can jump on the mailing list, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. Or if you just want to email me, sendosheremail at gmail.com. We'll be back in a moment with Rachel Coops. I've never dated a French man. Uh, <laughs> what, are the main, what are the main points of
2: difference? Oh, my
1: goodness. <sighs> oh, so funny, French men. So a great example, there's a lot of rules, like I said, in France. A great example is, um, and this is just a, a friendship with a French man who lives in Sydney now. A friend of mine came to visit me when I first moved back and met Australian girl while he was here on that trip and they're now married with kids and I sent her the invitation to the book launch and I was like you know are you guys coming and she said yes but you know Jan isn't coming because you didn't send him the invite lol and I'm like of course because in France if you don't send the invite to the person from you it's like they're not really invited so (laughs) I know. So like the last time I went back to Paris and Vicky was putting on a dinner, she's like, oh, do you want anyone else do you want to come over? And I'm like, yeah, this, you know, your brother's friend. And she's like, okay. And I said, I'll text him because I've been chatting to him. She's like, no, 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 because I'm no, ho- because I'm having the dinner. He's, he's old school. I have to invite him. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of rules. Yeah. There's no such thing as dating really. You're either in a relationship or you're not. There is nothing in between, like genuinely nothing in between. It's not like you meet and you go out, like you kiss and then you're you're in a relationship. There's a kind of. So are you of, saying like
0: fuckboys don't exist in Paris? No. Wow.
1: No. Wow. It's like you you genuinely are with someone or you're not with them. I mean I'm sure there's one-night stands. I didn't right. have any. But I'm sure there are. Got it. There's just your, you kiss someone at a party and then suddenly that you're like you're together. Wow. There is a really beautiful uh, appreciation for the whole person. There's not this obsession with beauty. I know it seems like in Paris there would be because it's Mm -hmm. all so beautiful and everyone's so beautiful. But there's not. It's genuinely people are interested in each other's minds. And I loved that, that it was so much about getting to know the person. And French, what else? You never pour your own. If your glass is empty, and say both of our glasses, actually even if your glass was half full, I would never pour my own glass first and then yours. I would always pour yours first. But apparently that's just a rule that lots of people have, which I just didn't know. I got taught it. Did you?
0: My parents are Euro (laughs) though.
1: Right. Yeah, I wasn't taught it. And I used to get scolded for stuff like that, always by French men, not by my French girlfriend. By my, my French girlfriends. There are a couple of things. Yeah.
0: I just remember as a kid, my mum used to always go, French are wonderful lovers. I was
1: like, what? Well, <laughs> is that like
0: we should know? Yeah. Like, I don't know, <laughs> mum. I, yeah. I think mum lived quite a, um, uh, uh, it's fair to say uh, her life had limited opportunities when she was living in Australia and then she went to the UK. Uh, with somebody that she broke up with fairly swiftly. And then a time passed and she met my father. So in that part. (laughs) She had a great time. I think she had a rad time. And good for her, I say. Yeah. It was 1964 or five or six or something. It was all happening.
1: I think we have to have that phase as well. And I didn't really do that when I was younger. Right. So I think I did it. in the safety of no one knowing who I was, I got to date lots of French boys because, well, not date, being short relationships or long relationships with French (laughs) boys. Um, Because I hadn't, yeah, I I didn't have, no one knew about it. No one who knew me had to know about it. I did have one friend, Amber, who came to visit me once. And I'd been with this particular French boyfriend. I was living with him for quite a long time. And she was like, you know he won't translate back in Australia, Rach, right? (laughs)
2: Like, translate English.
1: No, as in like he won't, you can't put him in Sydney. He won't survive in Sydney. Oh, right. right? He doesn't, he's gorgeous. But you know he won't translate to our life in Sydney. And I was like, mm, I hadn't thought of that. Right. <laughs> because there is a different sensibility mm. in Frenchmen. And what I love about it is that even going back when this last trip last year, a woman in my 40s, you're not invisible the way you are in in Sydney and I was very visible when I was younger like I remember going to Paris and it was a shock at first just constantly being looked at by men it didn't happen in Sydney like you could have mani Petty blow dries mm. makeup wear the tightest jeans and midriffs, which we were doing back then Tony wore those ridiculous hot pants like she still wears hot pants like no one else can but like you know you could be really showy yeah. and boys would not blink an eye and you could also change a, a car tire and be really practical. Like we had to, we had to be everything, right? Very yeah. really practical and pragmatic, but also. But in Paris, it's like everyone—they just look. They just look at girls. They look at women, and you know, I had a—I had an interview the other day with a, a and with this guy who was like, "Yeah, but if I look at women, I get in big trouble yeah. in Australia." Yeah, yeah, and. Again, I think it's a different time in, mm. you know, in the world. But back then, at first I hated it and I found it really invasive in Paris and I was like, wish that it stop and felt really self-conscious. And then I kind of got used to it because I realised it wasn't, there wasn't any, it wasn't harmful. It was just an appreciation. Mm. And it was kind of the same going back there this time. And there's just an appreciation. It's not like everyone's going, yeah, I want to like mm. date you. And it was just, I recognise that you're, you're, A human being in front of me. It's not like you suddenly become invisible as a woman in your 40s. And it's not in a lecherous way either. There's just a a kind of visibility.
0: Because there's a, it's a, in this culture, it's one or the other. Yes. It's completely ignored or stop looking at me, you fucking sex perv. Yes. There's no in between.
1: And I can tell you as a woman, it's like you are. You do as you get older. You do become more invisible. As soon as you have a child, as soon as you start to age, Mm. you become more invisible. And you just like, and the thing is, with us Gen X women too, we we we're not ready. Like we're not ready to just stop (laughs) being in our lives, right? So we're not ready to get middle age haircut and have a midlife crisis and put on some trackies. I mean, look, I love. I live in obviously. I live in these are jeans, but they're essentially trackies. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But there is a sense that we're not done. We've still got loads to do. Don't, mm. don't sideline us. Don't, you know, yeah. we've got so much more life to live yeah. because we have had a really, we're the first generation who did get to do it all. We got to yeah. have careers and have kids and, mm, yeah. and maybe have two marriages without too much fuss and like.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh mate, I'm, I'm on number two. You, you, you came to number one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I remember. It was a good party. It was, it was, it was I, don't, I don't remember much about that um, the so the last time so a dear friend of mine um heggy his um he, he met his wife in they were traveling, and uh, she grew up in Paris, and um one of his kids was born there, and she now lives she 's been here for years now, um, so their kids speak French to her and English to him, his eldest whom I held as a six week old child in Paris is now, you know, in her mid-teens and looks after Wolf. Wow. It's mind-blowing. But uh, on that trip when I, when I went to, because I just just like a kid, I wanted to go visit them, um, I was just a random bar in the middle of Paris, in the middle of the night with Heggy, we were just walking around. And I walk in and the girl behind the bar, she was, she'd be George's age now, she was 19, I was like, holy shit, I used to nanny you in Brisbane, probably 10 years before that, when she was like an eight-year-old,
1: oh my 10-year-old goodness. kid.
0: And she was there studying acting. She's was this 18, 19-year-old kid. Wow. And I remember sitting there. It was quite dark, but I was just like, mate, like you just well, don't not do anything. Just have the time of your life. Just do crate. it all. Do it all. What, yeah, exactly. Eat so, the
1: world. Uh, F- um, Philippe used to say, you have to want to eat the world.
0: So this is what I'm, I'd be asking you. There's probably people who are listening. We've just said literally like five days ago, tears at the airport, off she goes for her mm. big Euro trip. What would you say to other parents who are, you know, their 17-, 18-year-old is talking about their big trip or maybe their mid-20s? I didn't go overseas, so I was in my mid-20s. What would you say to them about their their, their son or particularly their daughter Heading away for such an adventure, knowing that there might be cigarettes, there, there might, might be, be French cigarettes.
1: boys. Yeah, plenty of French boys. Hopefully, we'll yeah. get to be on the back of a motorbike, With no cruising helmet. through yep. the Louvre. Yeah.
0: Why not? You know,
1: jackets smelling of cigarettes and aftershave. I think it is such a pivotal time in life to be somewhere where people don't know your name, and you can be anyone and anything and you become a blank canvas potentially for the first time in your life because mm-hmm. geographical distance is very useful in giving and, and I'm sure it's harder now with technology I probably had a lot more space because there wasn't constant and I have had friends with you know teenagers saying that well I can just look on the phone I can see where she is I can see she's going from this bar to this bar you <laughs> know track them but I would say that like on reflection, you know, it's taken me almost 20 years to write this book. And it wasn't until I went back as a woman in my forties to reflect on that time and how pivotal it was in who I am today, but also the, how it plugs you into a part of yourself. Like I said before, that nothing else can to be a foreigner and how much that like I talk about in the book, you have to learn to listen. Like you have to really concentrate and learn to listen instead of talking all the time. (laughs) And you need to stay curious because you're constantly learning and being in a constant state of learning outside of school and outside of parenting and outside of our friends and the experiences we have with them. It just teaches you bits about yourself you can't learn in any other way and it also i think going back and reflecting i look at it and go what an incredible incredible time i had and even though things didn't turn out as you know i wanted them to and it didn't necessarily give me what i wanted it to and i lost a great love and all the things it was in many ways the most important year of my life and i and even now when i when i think about going back, I appreciate things more today with less time. So going to the theatre in Paris at a time that was really indulgent and you could go to the theatre for six hours because there are amazing six-hour shows. Going back and being able to do it now because life gets harder as you get older. Mm. And so if that's their one year to just indulge and then appreciate it for a lifetime and to... Find a part of themselves that is free, like truly free, and full of pleasure and tough lessons, and hopefully they'll make some really, really big mistakes, like epic mistakes and failures, without everyone around them watching necessarily yeah. in their hometown. You know, yeah. and so you can you can figure out. Like some of my worst fears came true over there, and I was like, hey, "I'm okay, I'm, I survived." I can do this life thing
2: yeah.
1: and it's held me in really good stead. And it also gives you a place that you feel I have such a beautiful connection with that place. I can, I can take my son there one day. I can, I can't wait to take a partner there and show them my Paris and all of that stuff. Like being connected to a place outside of your, where you come from, I think is, and it doesn't have to be outside of Australia. Mm. Like you say, it might, might just be, but it doesn't have to be a year too. I know a lot of people say, well, I don't have, I'd love to go away for a year, but that's such a privileged position, and it is. It is a place of privilege, and I acknowledge that. It doesn't have to be for a year. Maybe you go for six weeks. Maybe you pick your family up Mm. and you go, or four weeks. Mm. And maybe it's going, you know, to Uluru and Mm. spending like a week of just you by yourself or, I don't know, but I think not just, not even teenagers, we all need to do that. We all need to go to places that aren't our everyday. by ourselves without all of our normal kind of, um, yeah, the everyday responsibilities and requirements and people and things that know you. I think it's it's life-changing.
0: And you, we brought it up a few times, but I just want to remind you before you go, mm. um, failure is an inseparable part of learning.
2: Mm.
0: No one, nobody figured out how to juggle chainsaws the first time. What did that look like? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they started oh my God. dropping everything on the ground.
1: Yeah, right.
0: For hours yeah. and days and weeks and months before they went, oh, there it is, and they got the final orbit, the first orbit. Yeah. And then they went, okay, two balls and an apple. And, they, and then suddenly there's a bowling ball and now there's a chainsaw. Yeah. But it you, you can't do that without failure.
1: And I'm going to do it again. And so are you, right? We're going to fail again and again and again. And that's probably also what it set me up for. There are so many creative projects (laughs) that I put time and energy into and they just don't happen for whatever reason. And I'm genuinely okay with it. I don't hold like, I don't have any attachment. Nobody,
0: nobody, literally, not even Leonard McCartney wrote a hit every time they sat down. Mm. We just heard the one in 100. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. It's not just Instagram that is just the best parts. Mm. It's anything. Like, I'm sure the same as when you wrote When I wrote my book, I wrote it five times.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it and like editors st- make
0: 80,000 words that didn't make it in. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. 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 And editors are like, let me make your book better. Thank you, editors. Thank you.
0: <laughs> um, you're the best, Raj. Thanks for coming.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That was super doops. I loved it.
0: And that was Rachel Coops. Her book is called Paris for Beginners. Her second book, Paris for Beginners. It's a cracking read. Well worth leafing through. If you've ever spent some time overseas, uh, if you've ever had a fling with a person whose English wasn't their first language, uh, if you've ever (laughs) dreamt of going away, if you're dreaming of the time you went away, uh, if there's someone in your life you think, you could do with going away. Because yeah, you got to go away to come back. That was told to me when I went away. Someone said, It's fine, mate. You've got to go away to come back. And they were right. It's a really good rule. Sometimes you can do with a good dose of distance. Sometimes it can help if that distance is from your country. It's useful. Thanks so much for being a part of it. Please do share, rate, like, comment, follow. Oops, I'm just, I just hit a coat hanger because I'm hiding in a cupboard because I'm trying to make this not sound as echoey as it is because I'm in mean, Echo Plaza, which is the, the apartment I'm staying at in Melbourne. Yeah, send us your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks to all the people that helped me make the show. Andy Ma, Abby benno and Toe Hider, who made all the music. Find us on TikTok or Instagram. You can find the link to the mailing list in the show notes. Have a fantastic day, night, arvo morning, whatever it is you're doing right now. And I'll see you soon.